We are in the middle of the sermon series on Advent. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, this will be our first full series on Advent since I've been at this church. We've started a lot. We've done a bunch of half series on Advent. So this is the first time I think we've spoke through all four Sundays, um, and it's been wonderful, so far at least. Um, we've been taking the angle of looking at the story of Jesus through the lives of some of the people who were around those stories, not looking at Jesus directly in a way, kind of trying to get, I guess, like the light of the sun via the moon. Um, We've taken the first week, Aaron came and did a wonderful job uh, speaking on Joseph. And he spoke about how through Joseph's simple obedience, this person who disappears before Jesus starts his ministry, God both keeps Jesus safe and does so in a way that fulfills the promises um, of prophecy. And then last week, Thomas gave a, um, a lighthearted, easy sermon on the wise men and um, Herod, just upbeat and joyous, um, speaking, <laughs> speaking of how a light has come into the darkness. From that, he didn't speak directly from the verse, but that portion we read in Isaiah, where in darkness light comes. And this light comes not to give us the life we think we should have, but the life that we need. It comes to give us Jesus. And he highlighted the different responses you have there. We have the wise men who are coming to give their gifts to Jesus. And you have Herod who sees a rival king and rises up to kill all the infants to make sure it doesn't happen. That's my son enjoying my preaching. This week we're leaping over. Those are both from Matthew. We're moving from Matthew into Luke. Um, What's interesting is those themes will follow. We'll continue to see the light coming in to the darkness, and we'll continue to see an emphasis on the response to that happening. Um, That's not because I'm a clever preacher or we really thought this out well. It's just that's the story of Christmas. A light comes into darkness and in the form of Jesus and the world responds to it. So we're moving from kings to shepherds this week. Uh, And it's in the second chapter of Luke. It follows on what Terry just read which is the story of Jesus' birth, where, as we, this story is popularly known, Joseph takes Mary down to Bethlehem, the city he's from, to, for a census. It's funny that a political, boring thing like a census gets them to that city. And there, where there's not enough room for an end, the, uh, Jesus is born in a manger. And that's where this picks up. Right after that, we've just laid Jesus in the swaddling clothes, which, as far as I know, it's an outfit only he wears. I don't think we use that phrase anymore. And it picks up in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. 
And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Oops. One moment. can't figure out how to turn that off. I'll just talk quickly. This is a pretty straightforward story. I mean, it's a birth announcement. Um, and if we've been reading straight through Luke, this is actually the third birth announcement in a chapter and a half. Um, the opening of Luke is basically birth announcements, births, and long speeches about politics and religion. Um, it's kind of like a first century Facebook feed. Um, but... Sorry. <laughs> the um, yeah, this is so Luke is on pace for forty-eight birth announcements. If he keeps this up, this is not an accident. He is jamming a bunch of birth announcements right next to each other to have us read them off of each other. We're supposed to, in the first one, see a foreshadowing of the ones that are to come, and then as we read each subsequent one, we're supposed to remember what's been told to us in the one before. The first announcement is the announcement to Zechariah the priest that he will have a son who is John the Baptist, the one that goes before Jesus. The second one is Mary, who's told she's going to have Jesus. And now we have the announcement to the shepherds. These all, just to make sure we don't miss the fact that we're supposed to read these in a connected way, um, in a similar way to how Matthew highlights Joseph's obedience by basically having Joseph be told something and then repeating it again with him doing it in the exact same order. Here we have these announcements following the exact same pattern. An angel appears, a person's terrified, the angel calms them, the angel announces a birth, then describes who this child is, and then gives a sign that this is actually true. That happens in each of the stories, and it's pretty much a straight line through. Um, so we could look at each of those aspects of this story, but for time's sake, we're just going to focus on three of them. We're going to look at who is announced in this story, who is that baby, who receives this announcement, and how that announcement's given. So first, the most important thing in a birth announcement is who the baby is. Um, we care about birth announcements because of who the baby is. Um, there's a reason there's not some super popular Twitter feed just running through every child born on earth because no one cares. I mean, children are all wonderful miracles and all that. But we care about individual children for a reason. Usually it's because you know the people. I get really excited. We get really excited, all of us, when somebody comes up here and announces they're pregnant. And then when we know somebody goes into labor, we're checking our email to see the good news and find out what the kid's named. Um, we're excited because we know these people. The other reason it can happen is because the child carries some significance. This is a little rarer today. Um, the closest thing I can think of is either a celebrity's 
um, children when they're born in a kind of disturbing way, or in a way that doesn't make sense to my American mind, the royal children um, who, yeah, the world stops to find out these kids are born. Um, and my kids are born almost the exact same time as each of them, and no one cares. But it's because this kid has something about them that people know something. Um, and that is what's coming here. This is coming to the shepherds to tell them of an important child. The shepherds have no idea who this kid is. This is not a family relation. They don't come and tell. He doesn't even, the angel doesn't even mention the name of who this child is. Um, just comes and says a child is born. Um, it would be useless to say the name because Jesus was basically like the Mike of um, that century. So it would be like saying a Mike is born, which fantastic. But it is <laughs> like we need another mic. Um, but it is, they come to announce what this child is about. That's what the force of the angel's story is. And that's why these shepherds are supposed to care. Um, so the angels come giving good news with great joy of a child. And they give the titles of the child. This is a savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, we hear that through 2,000 years of Christian history. Those words are, it's like basically if you had like a family feud with what are the most popular titles of Jesus in the church, like those five, those three would show up in the top five. Christ, Lord, Savior. But we can read this too much on our side, and we can think that what we hear this through the way we have grown accustomed to hearing an announcement of Jesus, the personal Savior, the religious figure has come to be born. But Luke is saying something, and the angel is announcing something in a way that would sound different to the audience of that day. He's using words that are filled with references to the Old Testament, and they're also drawing on the culture around them using political terms of that day for the king. The idea of simply bringing good news echoes something that is repeated in Isaiah again and again of this person who is coming and the good news that will be brought about him. At the same time, this, the, the, when it says, I bring you good news, that's actually just one verb. It's one word that carries the whole idea of bring you good news. It's euangelismi, which you don't need to remember, but it's the, word, it's the verb form of the word we translate to gospel or good news. Um, and it carries, it does not yet have the sense that we have for gospel, but it is an announcement of good news. And it's the word that the Romans used when they're announcing things about their kings. We read that this um, census was put in place by Caesar Augustus. When they go to announce Caesar Augustus's birthdays, they come to tell the good news. They come to, in a sense, evangelize, to announce what has happened with this king. So we have the angels are showing up already just in the word they're using to describe it. They're alluding to this announcement of Isaiah and the fact that a word that is just chock full of royal significance. They're announcing a king. And likewise, these three words that are used to describe Jesus, Savior, Christ, Lord, all have political significance. We tend to hear Savior again in terms of deliverance from sin, but the Old Testament reference when it typically shows up is somebody like the judges whom God raises up to deliver his people from oppression. Similarly, Savior is a word commonly used by the Romans to describe their kings and their rulers. 
Augustus is a savior and that he comes to lead his people from the oppression of the outside world, to protect his people. He is their savior. Now it carries, we know in the overarching scope of scripture, the idea of a deliverance from sin, but we can't think that that's a reduction of the meaning. What it is, is it is a come to deliver from the political oppression, but it's recognizing the power that is behind that and it drives even deeper. Jesus comes to defeat the powers that oppress each one of us individually and also the powers that oppress this world. Similarly with Christ, which is the Messiah, the anointed one. Christ is just the Greek version of Messiah, which means anointed one. It's the word you use to describe the one who would sit on David's throne. And those two have both been alluded to in the birth announcements that have already come. But this one that shows up here third, Lord, is a new one at least in the book of Luke. Previously, it's been used to refer to God, but it's going to become one of Luke's most common words to describe Jesus. He refers to him as Lord again and again and again throughout his Gospels and through his second volume of Acts. And in here in this uh, word Lord and in the idea of good news for all people, we have something, just a hint of what is going to, what Luke will play out over two books of a universal rule for Jesus. He is not simply the one who has come to sit on David's throne to cast off David's, uh, Israel's oppressors and raise Israel back up to a national power. He has come as Lord of all to free all people. That is the king who, is born, who has come. That is the child who is born. That's who's being announced. I lost my water. I'll keep going. Yeah, thank you. And you have an announcement, and it's kind of like a tree falling in the woods. If no one hears it, was there really an announcement? Um, so it has to go to someone. And in this case, it goes to shepherds. The first two go to family. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, you're going to Zechariah. You're going to tell him he's going to have a son, which is great. And, I mean, if anybody needed to be given a heads up, it was Mary. Um, not like three months in, it was going to be really strange for her. Um, but in this case... It's branching out. It's leaving family and going to the world. So really anyone could be chosen. And we get shepherds. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us much about them. As he goes in this, he could give us any number of facts about this people. He could tell us where they're from. He could tell us how many there, there are. We know there's at least two because it's plural, but that's all we know. He could tell us some how long they've been, where they're going, anything about them. He tells us that they were shepherds in a field keeping watch over their flock by night. So basically he tells us they're shepherds shepherding. So what we get is the uh, impression they're shepherds just doing their shepherd work. Um, So what are shepherds? And I don't mean that in a sense. We know there's people who watch sheep. I don't think you're all idiots. But how were they viewed in this era? And at the risk of stepping on a thousand Christmas sermons, shepherds were not viewed as despised sinners in those days. That they didn't really get looked down upon in that way for another few centuries. These were not like the traveling carnies of the day who were kind of the disreputable people outside of town who you don't want your kids to go near. Um, but they are nobodies. They're poor people. These guys might have owned a little bit of land, but with taxes from Rome and just the general upkeep, they couldn't support their family off of their own land, so they've hired themselves out to watch somebody else's flocks. Uh, 
So what we really have here, in kind of in modern day terms, we have somebody who's just a nobody working a paycheck to paycheck, getting by, out in the field, doing their nine to five. That's who we have in this story. It could be, in modern terms, it could be somebody like a fast food employee or um, a farm laborer out in the field. It's somebody who is scraping by doing their work is who, G- who Luke is setting this up for us. We're to see somebody on the lowest rung, not disrespected, but just on a low rung, that's who's coming. This is a, he's drawing our attention to somebody who normally gets overlooked. And this kind of confounds how we think these stories are supposed to go. Matthew follows what feels like a more natural line. A king is born. So you go and you tell the father. And then he's born and other rulers come and bring him gifts. And then he's a threat to these other powers. So you get this big intrigue with a bunch of kids get killed so, he can try and, so the other king can try and snuff out this king before he's a threat, and instead he escapes. It has that intrigue and the power and the royalty we expect. Luke goes the other way entirely. It starts right. It starts where we expect. It starts with an announcement to a priest. You get um, a priest in a temple, no less. You have a good, respectable, um, righteous man who in a temple doing priestly work has somebody come, has an angel come and tell him he's going to have a son. And then it starts to go a little sideways from our expectations. The next person is Mary, which again, it makes sense to tell the mother of the child. But, and we can even get on board with this kind of rags to riches thing that it's a poor girl. But she's from the backwoods. I mean, she's from a little town. You would expect the person who's going to be the Messiah to be from Jerusalem, from somewhere important. In modern terms, it'd be like, the kid should be from New York if you're remaking this as a movie not from Mobile, Alabama. I mean, do you really want your savior to have a backwoods southern drawl? I mean, that just doesn't go away. Everything they say is going to have that accent. But instead, that's the way he goes. And now he can go anywhere he wants with the story. These angels can go tell any person they want, and they choose shepherds. Nobody's. They're not related. They never appear again. These guys just disappear after the story. So it's not even like there's a tie-in to them showing up later in some great importance. It's just shepherds. I mean, if Jesus was born now, would we expect the angels to show up at the night shift at McDonald's to Annette is the first person they tell. But that's what happens here. And it's not like Luke is stuck with some inconvenient facts that he tries to shuffle off to the side. Uh, Much the opposite, he takes this fact that it's going to shepherds and tries to hammer in exactly how much this is going to the shepherds intentionally. Let me just reread the passage and listen to the words that he, the extra phrases he drops in to make clear who this is. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, And they were filled with fear, and the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring good news and great joys that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is the Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. 
you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And it goes on like that in the second half. Again and again and again, it's driving home this point. This message is for these shepherds on purpose. God is intentionally going to these people who are in the lowest rung, to these nobodies, and this is who he wants to tell. For unto them a child is born. This is not an incidental detail, nor is the fact that it takes place at night. Uh, We have kind of a nativity set image of how this all happened. So we're like, of course it happened at night. There was a star. We kind of compress the whole story into everybody shows up at once. Like Jesus pops out and instantly the angels go, like a scar shoots up and the angels go to tell the shepherds who happen to run into the wise men on the streets. They can all get there about an hour afterwards and just kind of sit there while the donkey looks on. That's kind of the image we have, but there's, the story's not quite that compressed. Uh, he does use that today is born, but that even that can have a general feel of in this general range. Luke uses today for emphasis, but it could even then have a general day. But even if it's born the same day, Jesus could have been born in the morning, the shepherds could be at night. He is drawing out night for a reason. It's not just that these people are shepherds in the field, working their nine to five, getting their paychecks, scraping by, doing what they knew. They're doing it in the dark. He wants us to picture these men sitting, nobody's who no one's heard of, doing their thing in darkness, working, doing their day-to-day stuff, just taking care of their lives, and they're doing it in darkness, and a light bursts forth. The angel shines. A light breaks into the darkness. A light breaks into the darkness, and they see the light, and they know that unto us a child is born. Unto us, the nobodies, a child was born. Now, as strange as the who is, the how it gets announced is also pretty weird. I mean, an angel appears. I mean, we walk through what happens here. An angel appears to these guys. They're terrified. They know it's an angel. It was night a moment later. Now it's shining. An angel tells them that a child is born for them who is going to be this great thing, that it is the promised Messiah has come as Savior, as Lord, and it's a child born for them. And then he's going to give them a sign. He doesn't point to, hey, I'm an angel and I'm talking to you, which should carry a decent amount of weight. Nor does he point to, in just a second, the skies are going to burst open behind me and there's going to be a legion of angels singing songs. So you should believe me. Now he tells them that the sign that you will know that a child has been born is that you will find a child. Now if I was to go to you and want to tell you of some monumental birth and tell you that it's happened in Highland Park, which is the sign that's going to get more credence with you? Angels are about to sing, or if you go door to door, you're going to find a statistically likely event. If you're just trying to get someone to believe, this is a pretty lousy sign. So something more must be going on here. It's not, this is not simply a sign to give to bring about belief. This is a sign to explain what's going on. 
Because it's not just that they're going to find a baby, it's that they're going to find a baby in a manger. The angels have just announced the Savior has come, um, the Messiah has arrived, the King has he- been, is here. This isn't just a king, this is the king you've all been waiting for. We know where that person's supposed to be. It's supposed to be in a palace or at least a nice house. But their sign is that you will know this child is born unto you. You will go find him in a manger. This could have been done differently. Angels could have gone to the shepherds. They still could have gone to the nobodies and told them, you guys are the lucky ones who get to hear first. A benevolent ruler has been born. Your lives are going to be better. You're never going to see him. He's in the palace where you're not allowed to go. But your lives are still better, and that's still good news. But that's not the news he's telling him. He's telling instead they can go into this town and find him in the most unlikely of places. They can go find him in a feeding trough. The one who will reign over everything is sitting there wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying among the animals in a feeding trough. He's being, they're being told that the hope of the world has not only come, but that he's come among their people. That the hope of the world is coming also from another nobody. This is basically like the angels showing up today and saying, here, O workers of the McDonald's night shift, the Savior has been born, the one who will deliver this country, who will deliver the world from the oppression that it is, who will bring an end to death. That one's been born, and you can go find him down the street where a southern girl is visiting her relatives in their Section 8 housing. That's what this story is trying to get across. This is a nobody who's been brought into a low spot. They can go see a person from their own space. They can go touch him, his hands. The hands will be pierced. They don't know that, but they can just go touch the one who will bring about their deliverance. The light has broke into their darkness. It's broke into our darkness. For unto us a child is born. So they went. That's the response. I mean, who wouldn't go? Angels appear. More angels appear. There's a lot of singing. I mean, all you're doing is working. I would go. And they get, but they get three responses when they get there. They go tell their story. And you, we see three ways of responding to this, which, again, we get the same story. Light breaks into darkness, and people respond differently. Everyone, the marvels. We read... All who heard it wondered at it. So they're telling this story around town. Anybody who will listen, they want to tell. And these people are marveling. But that's all they do. They sit and they wonder at this stupendous amount of facts, and then something comes up and distracts them, and they move along. And this fades into the memory of most of these people to just some random story they might think of some years later when they see a shepherd by the moonlight. But that's all that it is. Which seems like a harsh read of this, except for it's not mine, it's Luke's. Because he contrasts that view, that wondering at this, with Mary's. They wondered. Sorry, I was reading the wrong line. They wondered, but Mary treasured this up and pondered in her heart. There's a contrast there. 
We're supposed to see Mary takes this in and treasures it and ponders it and tries to figure out what the meaning is. These people just wonder at it for a moment and then move on. Mary's path is much better. I mean, we know from this point that um, Mary doesn't understand this fully yet. She's going to go through the temple thing with Jesus getting lost in a moment, and again, she's going to take that and ponder it in her heart, and she's still not going to get it. And we know this because at some point she's going to go and try and rescue Jesus when he, she thinks he's gone off the deep end. She gets it eventually, but it's not yet. She's just pondering these things in her heart, which if you don't understand it is a fantastic way to go. Just sit and mull it over. Don't take it as an attraction to marvel at and then pass by. But both of those responses sit below the shepherds. We read, after this has all happened, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. You can picture them walking back, marveling at the fact that this story was told to them that angels appeared to them, that they got to go touch this person, looking at their dirty shepherding hands and knowing those hands had just touched the baby they were told would deliver their people. And they rejoiced. They believed and rejoiced. They sit and they talk and they marvel over that statement that unto us a child has been born. They saw him, they touched him, he came for them. Now, I said that Luke, when he draws this story together, it feels like it just kind of takes a weird path. But it is the path that Luke actually sets up the whole time, and he follows it through to the end. Um, it does start where you would expect with a priest in the temple, the righteous man, but that is the one who actually gets the three announcements wrong. He's the one that doesn't believe and gets put mute until his son's born. The poor girl from the small town believes the shepherds believe and go report what's happened and rejoice and glorify God for it. And this isn't something that dies off with um, just the announcements of Jesus. This is how uh, Luke has Jesus start his message, his ministry. He's in Nazareth, his hometown, and he stands up in the synagogue. And the scroll, this is from chapter 4 of Luke, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fi fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Good news to the poor. Liberty to the captive. Sight to the blind. Liberty to all who are oppressed. And it's not just a message. As you follow through the life of Jesus, these are the people he goes to. He goes to the respectable, and he goes to the poor and the outcasts. And the respectable tend to reject him. And the lepers rejoice. 
And then he dies, killed by the respectable powers, and he rises again, and then he ascends to heaven. And then after that, when Luke picks up this story and continues it on to Acts, the glory of God falls, and it misses the temple by 30 yards. It falls onto a bunch of scared, huddled nobodies next door. The glory of God does not fall back into the temple, but it falls among a people. And then those people take that message to the hated neighbors of the Jews, the Samaritans. It pushes beyond Israel. And it goes from there on into the rest of the world. Some respectable people, like Zechariah and Paul, bungle it at first, but then kind of get on with what's supposed to be happening. But the majority reject Jesus They persecute the people who proclaim his message. And they find him just generally to be a struggle while the prostitutes weep over him. The lepers rejoice. And the children just come to him and get embraced. Through this, What Luke is trying to do is not just tell the story of Jesus. He wants us to see that we are part of the nobodies. He's trying to open up everybody's eyes to the fact that they, no matter where they sit, are at that spot of being sick. Jesus came to heal the sick, and Luke is going through this trying to make sure we're all aware that we are sick, no matter how good our life seems to be. Jesus came to break the chains of oppression, and Luke is basically shaking them in front of our eyes so that we will see them and turn to Jesus to have them broken. He comes and he tells, I think it's in Luke 18, the parable of the, there's a priest that goes into the temple and there's a sinning tax collector. And the priest says, thank you, God, for not making me like the sinner. He looks up, and the sinner just beats his chest and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, the tax collector. And Jesus says, which one do you think went home justified? It's the one who knows he's sick. It's the one who knows he needs assistance. It's the one who knows he is one of the nobodies as well and marvels that Jesus came to him. The respectable past is to, the respectable path was to go priest, Princess, palace. That's what you expect for Jesus. But instead, God goes into the wandering backwoods, into the dregs of everything, because that's where he had to go to find us. And like shepherds, we should respond in joy. This is a message that for unto us a child has been born. We're a people who labor in darkness. We are a people who are sick. We are a people who are enchained. We're people who are blind. We're people who, as Terry said, death is part of life, who, for whom death is coming. Every one of us is closer to death than we were when we woke up this morning. Sorry to break that. We're a people who should see this child coming to us, to be from us, to be among us, and rejoice, but we so often struggle with it. This is the story of Christmas. We're supposed to be rejoicing that this child comes to us, and we struggle. 
I think there's two, there's a thousand reasons, but there's two main ones I want to talk about in closing. Two things that we can consider in this Advent season. I mean, for those who, we are in Advent. Christmas starts on the 25th. This is kind of the season of preparation. This is, would be the fasting to Christmas feasting. The 12 days of Christmas are not the 13th to 25th. It's the 25th to January. This is, I'm not trying to come heavy any more than Thomas tried to come heavy last week because we're supposed to be dour at Christmas. But we all live in spots where we need to take time to clear away the brush so the light can shine through. And that's what we can do. And that's what I want us to take time over this next period and pause. We can just roll with our jobs to our jobs, to shopping, to shopping, to Christmas, to New Year and on, and never take a moment to stop and reflect. And we wonder why Christmas isn't that joyous. So we need to take time to reflect. And these are just two lines I think we can reflect upon. The first one is one that Thomas brought up last week, which is our situation. This can be prevent us from rejoicing. It can prevent us in really two ways. Some of us struggle because of a, the gap we perceive between where we are and where we think we should be. And it drives us crazy. We know that the sun has come. We know that this child has been born. We know that a new day has dawned. But we struggle that we're living at dawn as opposed to noon. We want the sun to be bright. We want it to be up. We want it to be in the fullness of what it's supposed to be. And what we find is ourselves still struggling, still seeing a huge gap from who we are and where we want to be. And in that, we can reflect on the shepherds. I mean, these guys go away rejoicing. Where are they going? They're going back to work. They went back to shepherding. They went back to a nine to five. They didn't turn their experience with this newborn son into a book deal and change their lives dramatically. They just went back to what they were doing. And they'd probably all died shepherds as well. but they had seen something that was going to transform their lives forever. They had touched their future hope, and that was a hope that could not be undone, even if their material circumstances didn't change all that dramatically between seeing that child, walking away, never reappearing in the story until they see him again. We can reflect on the promise they saw that the light that broke in there would break into their lives again. Some of us, even though it's dawn, on the other hand, have the advantage to make it really feel like it's high noon. We've turned the lights up. We're affluent enough that we can turn the lights up enough that it feels like it's noon. And the brightest of light could try and burst into that, and we wouldn't notice because it's already pretty well lit. I mean, this is one of the risks of affluence, that we lose sight, that we forget that we are one of the nobodies, that we lose that ache, that we actually are. The whole gap between where we want to be and where we think we should be is really small, at least sometimes. Sometimes. 
And if that's where we are, we need to, I mean, one of the saddest things that can happen is that we reach a spot as Christians that we forget how we got where we are. That God has come and changed our life, and some of those changes have brought us to a good place, and then we forget the one who got us there. I mean, one of the warnings to Israel they went into the land is that at some day they would reach a level of affluence and they would forget the one who brought them there. And that is something we have to watch out for. We need to do what we can to dim those lights a little sometimes. We need to identify with the oppressed and the poor. And in some cases that means giving some of the, a lot of the stuff we have away to them, which will also help dim the lights a little. We need to be such that if we start to feel some existential angst about how life is running, that we don't turn on Instagram until it goes away. We could probably do well to sit and read Ecclesiastes until we get really depressed and then go to Luke again. But we need to reflect on where we are actually sitting and not let an affluence and what we can put in place blind us to that. Because if we get to that spot, the light will never break in and we are going to sit in fear that something's going to actually cause the light to be dimmed. That we're going to lose what's holding us up. As opposed to a child that is given as a gift that will never be taken away. So we have the situation on one hand and the other side we have an identity. Some of us struggle, and to be honest, I struggle with all four of these almost at all times. I sit with a situation where I don't need to be aware of my need, and then like six seconds later, all I can think about is how unhappy I am with that situation. And we bounce around all day. I can do the identity side, where I can lose sight of the wonder that Christ has come to me because, of course, he would have come to me. Who else would he come to? We can become one of the respectable people. And my prayer for that, those of us who sit there and have lost sight of the wonder that Christ has come to us is just that God would pierce that this season. He would open our eyes to the marvel of his love for us. That we would see ourselves among the shepherds and marvel that this child has been born unto us. Now, the thing about Advent is Advent makes no sense without Christmas. Advent by itself is a long, depressing thing. It's continually waiting for something that never comes. But we have Christmas in that same sense that as we need to know that we are the shepherds, some of us also struggle to be aware that Christ would come to us at all. We see ourselves as the shepherds, as the nobodies, as the ones who are down low, who aren't respectable, who are just have lives wrecked with sin. We think ourselves outside of the reach of God, that he wouldn't come to us. And again, we can do well to reflect on these shepherds. We can see that God could have taken this message to absolutely anyone, and he went to nobodies working the field because he's come for all men. We sit in that moment still of waiting. 
as we're in this Advent season. We remember the time when Israel waited for the coming of Jesus. And we remember where we are now waiting for Jesus to return. And we need to live our lives in the light of that. We live our lives in an Advent season. So it's good to take a time of the year to pause and reflect on the meaning of that, to reflect on what our situation actually is. But that's because we live our lives constantly in an expectation of Christmas, that the child who was born will return again, and that we will rejoice. Wherever we find ourselves in these struggles of situation or identity, of trying to figure out how we sit, of again, as me fluctuating back and forth, sometimes as arrogant as I can be and in the same sentence wondering why God would ever care. But we can look at the shepherds, we can look to the promises that were given here, and we can know that no matter where we sit, the best days are still ahead of us. What is coming is going to eclipse even the best that we can picture. So we sit here waiting for Jesus to return. Father, we thank you. We thank you that the child that was born unto us we thank you that you come to people of no regard, that you come to people who haven't gotten themselves into the spots where we think we should be, that you come bringing good news and glad tidings of joy for all, that you come with news of a benevolent king that we can touch, that we can know, that we can see. And I pray that as we move through this Advent season, as we move in expectation of Christmas, as we move looking towards the next year, that we would find times to pause and that you would meet us in them, that we would marvel at your love for us, that we would marvel that you even are concerned to come, that we would marvel at the incarnation of God lying in the manger. But that we would do more than simply marvel and pass on to the next bobble. That we do more than simply marvel and pick up the next toy. But that it would sit, that we would ponder it, that it would transform us. That these things would linger and roll over in our minds. That your truths would sit as treasures in our hearts and that you would reveal yourself to us, Lord, and that we would rejoice. As Terry said, Lord, we need to be a community that loves better. We also need to be a community that rejoices better. We can be a dour, cynical Los Angeles bunch. We pray that you would break through at this season of joy and touch each one of our hearts. Amen.